So if you've been with us at all, uh, we, we have, um, we've been in the book of Mark, I think, for now about three or four months. And we'll probably be in it for the next three or four years at the rate we're going. Because um, we're just now wrapping up chapter four. But so far, what it seems like Mark has been, what Mark has been doing is really wanting to drive home, if you will, uh, the what Jesus is doing, what he is about, the reason he is here, and, and who he is at, at a uh, greater level than even his disciples understand at this point. So kind of what we're going to do today is we're going to pick up, I think it's in verse 35, and then we're just going to kind of go section by section, maybe line by line in some of it, and we'll read a little bit, we'll stop, talk about that a little bit, read a little bit more. And then we'll, we'll get down. So as we're doing that, we'll be kind of talking about the immediate uh, implications of it all. And then when we get to the end, there is, a, there is a fuller, a more full picture going on that we will try to delve into a little bit. And then uh, we will try to land this thing. So if you've got your Bibles, great. If not, uh, we'll be showing it here on the, on the screen. But it starts out in verse 35 and it says this. It says, on that day when evening came. Okay, so in the, in the, first, in the first verse here, Mark mentions a few things as, as so that we can kind of get a framework, we can kind of get a context um, for where this, this text is happening or what's going on. Uh, what we are in, what this text is specifically, is kind of a transitional piece. It's not a transitional piece from one period of time to another period of time. Rather, it's more kind of like a conjunction in a sentence uh, where it's pairing two things together in in the same period, if you will. And so Mark starts off by saying, on this same day when evening came. Well, what same day? We need to know this. What same day is Mark talking about? So when we look at the text, the same period that Mark is talking about actually goes all the way back to 320. So what we have going on so far is Jesus has just spent a lot of time declaring that he is the good and better Moses coming to free his people. He is the one who is Lord of the Sabbath. He is uh, not only king, but he is prophet of this coming kingdom. Remember last week, we kind of went over those parables in which Jesus is starting to explain what this kingdom looks like. And it looks very different from what a lot of the Jews of that time expected it to be. So Jesus has been speaking. He has been declaring. He has been showing himself to be who he is. So on that same day that Jesus had been doing all of that, we continue... Jesus says to his disciples, let's go across to the other side of the lake. And we've got two things here. First of all, it doesn't tell us yet what the other side of the lake is. But I think if we know what the other side of the lake is, it helps us understand what's getting ready to happen and how the disciples view it. Okay, and we don't have to look far. We can, we're going to cheat next week's message a little bit. If we just jump into, into chapter 5 what we find is that the other side of the lake is a place called Gerasena. Okay? Gerasena is a city that is part of the Decapolis, a a, a ten-city region uh, basically owned and ran by Rome. We we find out once we get there, there are pig farmers. There's no pig farmers in in Jewish-controlled areas. There There is a man ruled by an evil spirit, 
living among the graves. In other words, here's the deal. Jesus is telling his disciples after this long day of proclaiming to his own people, we are now going to get into this boat and we are going to go over to the pagan side. Are you with me? We, we, we need to know that. We are, we are going to the pagan side. Ironically, we might get into this a little bit next week, is it, it, there, there's a lot more, Mark uses a lot more symbolism than it just simply being pagan. Uh, as we, the first thing we see when we get to chapter 5 is this, this, uh, this demonic man who has been controlled by these, uh, these demonic powers and these demons flee into these pigs. Ironically, one of the major symbols of Rome's power, which is Mark is writing this letter to the church of Rome, happens to be the pig. And remember back in chapter 1, we talked about how from, from the, the, the church of Rome's perspective, they see that it is the kingdom of Rome that is advancing, not the kingdom of God. We'll, we'll get into that next week. But so, so they're going to the pagan place. And, and not only are they going to a pagan place, we, we need to grab this before we go on is Jesus makes a declaration. He tells his disciples, we are going to the pagan place. We are going to the other side. He does not say, like I would say in a, different, in a certain situation, we are going to the other side if the conditions line up. He does not say we are going to the other side if, if no storms happen. He does not say we are going to the other side if my mood is right. He says we are going to the other side, period. Now, this is Jesus. This is God. All we have to do is look through the rest of the Bible. And when we find when God makes a declaration, it does happen. It manifests itself. It's not it's a possibility. It is a declaration of what will happen. We see this, we see this back in creation. God doesn't look over the chaos and the nothingness. And say, let's see if some light could happen. He says it and it happens. So this is, this is the first voice we have, if you will. That Jesus tells his disciples, let's give it a shot. He doesn't say, let's give it a shot and go to the pagan place. He says, we are going there. Picking up in verse 36. So after leaving the crowd, they took him along just as he was in the boat and other boats were with him. Now a great windstorm developed and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was nearly swamped. But he was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. We, we know he's had a long day. Um, they, they, being his disciples, the fishermen, woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are about to die? Now, first of all, here's what we have to, we can assume. This storm is massive because Jesus doesn't have your typical land dwellers with him. He has fishermen. He has seafaring people. The Jews were not typically seafaring people, but the fishermen were, right? By their name, fishermen. So the storm is so massive that people who are used to being on the sea are freaking out. They are assuming death is coming for them. And they are, they are in panic. But now let's, to, to dive a little deeper, the, the sea, 
uh, in, in the ancient world, and this is, this is not just biblical information, this is extra biblical information. In fact, there is very little that all the ancient civilizations agreed upon other than uh, they, they, they would have not understand the concept of atheism back then. And they had this view, all ancient civilizations had this view of the sea. The sea was considered the most powerful force on the earth. For some, it actually represented God. For some, it represented a force that only God could control. And, and the Jews, when they, when they kind of talk about a raging sea, they actually talk about the sea as a force that is against God, that is out to destroy God's good creation, destroy his people, and to stop his will. And, and part of that is tied to their... their uh, northern neighbors, the Phoenicians, who were, who were seafaring people, um, and they, they were pagans. And so the sea had kind of come to resemble that it was, it was something much more than just uh, a body of water. But when it began to rage, the gods were at war, if you will. Does that make sense? And so when you look at it through that lens, you can begin to see that we're not just talking about a storm that the weatherman would talk about, but it's almost like a second voice has appeared on the scene. Remember scene one, the first voice? Jesus declares, we are going to the other side. And it's like another voice, the voice of the gods, the voice of chaos, the voice of destruction, the voice of the unknown. It begins to speak and it begins to speak Loudly. So loud that the disciples decide to point their faith towards that voice. Because that voice seems a lot more convincing than the voice that came from the dude who is sleeping through the storm. Now, a lot of times when we read the stories about the disciples, we watch some stupid moves they make. And we're like, well, I would, that's stupid. I would, I would never do something like this, right? But I think we get this. I think we can relate to this. I think I can probably speak for most of us in here to say that we have all been at certain times in our life, whether it is a divorce, whether it's a miscarriage, whether it's cancer, whether it's the loss of a job, uh, jumping out into the unknown, or whether it's, maybe it's nothing material, maybe the devil's just using your head as kind of his dance floor, but we have all been in those places in life where the storm or the voice of chaos and destruction seems to speak a little louder than the voice of Jesus. Right? We've all been there. We get this. And in the immediate circumstances, when the voice of chaos and destruction begin to scream, the disciples move their faith away or quit pointing it at the words of God. And they lean into the words of chaos and destruction all the way to the point that fear, doubt, and anxiety has gripped them and they are now accusing Jesus of actually loving them. Their present circumstances make them wonder, God, do you even care? 
right? Which that comes with some assumptions. Those assumptions being, if God cared, if God loved us, I know none of you have thought this, but God, if you cared, if you loved us, you would never let us go through, you fill in the blank. Let's keep going. So he, Jesus, got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be quiet, calm down. Then the wind stopped and it was a dead calm. Now, oh, there's a couple, there's a few things here. First of all, as soon as the disciples wake him up, he doesn't wake up and try to comfort them and figure out what their past was. He jumps up and he rebukes the sea. He tells them to calm down. But the way this is written is, is in personal language. Jesus actually speaks to the sea as if it was a child. Right? Those of you who are parents, you've had that situation. You're trying to talk. You're trying to do something. You're trying to get to the other side, metaphorically, whatever that is. And, and Junior has something much more important to tell you, like his video game is paused or whatever. And he is, right? And, and, he, and you just, hush. Just sit down for a minute. Right? This is, this is how Jesus talks to the storm. He almost demeans it. And Mark wants to add something in there. He doesn't just say the storm stopped, but he says at the, at the end of the rebuke, it was a dead calm. Because, I mean, it could look like a coincidence. Jesus happens to say storm stop and it stops at the same time. But have any of you ever, whether it's been on vacation or where you live or what have you, have you ever looked out over the water after a storm? Right? At best, the water's choppy. But, but in some cases, if the storm is bad enough, the water, at least, whether the rain, the rain and the wind might have stopped, but the water is still raging. And Mark goes the extra mile to let us know that it was a dead calm. Remember what the sea used to represent. What Mark is driving home is a, is a visualization, if you will, that the kingdom or the order of chaos and destruction that oftentimes play roles in our lives, that plays roles in the disciples' lives, bows and falls quiet at the power of the kingdom. And it comes to a complete stop. Now Jesus is going to turn his attention from the storm. And he says this, and he said to them, why are you cowardly? Do you still not have faith? Now, now why are you cowardly? It can also be, it can also be uh, worded, why, are you, why were you afraid? And a little bit, can, can you kind of imagine the disciples' thoughts? Why, duh, why were we afraid? Because the boat is filling up with water. Let's explain this to you, Jesus. The boat is filling up with water. We are not fish. We are people. We cannot breathe underwater, and you were sleeping. Your love has been tested, and it has been found lacking. Your care that you claim to have for us is nowhere to be found. Why were we afraid? Because you were doing nothing to relieve our immediate circumstances. That's why we were afraid. But when we dive into that question just a little deeper than the surface, which is kind of where, I know I do, but where we like to um, where we like to land on things because we don't want to accuse us. We need to accuse somebody else. And if that happens to be God, so be it. Um, 
Jesus' question actually makes a lot of sense. Because the disciples claim, all we have to do is read the first four chapters. The disciples claim that they trust who Jesus is. They believe who he is. They trust his word. So what Jesus is saying is your fear doesn't make sense. It's not congruent with what you claim. I don't understand. Explain it to me. Isn't that really what fear, not, not momentary fear, but fear that grips us or anxiety or doubt? Isn't that oftentimes just a manifestation of us not really believing who we claim to believe? And here's what we have to know. When Jesus asks us a question, I mean, come on, let's, let's just be real. He's not looking for information. He knows, he knows why. But when Jesus begins to ask us questions, and, and today he, I think he does that through community. I think he does that through his word. I think he does it through sermons. I think he does it as we're praying. When he begins to ask us questions, he is asking us questions to reveal to us the self that really doubts who he is. Because we've got to remember, Scripture tells us that God's main goal for us is not that we live a storm-free life. It's not his main goal. His main goal is that we are made into the image of his son. And sometimes that might mean going through the storms so that he can reveal to us that which is very opposed to the image of his son. And then he asks another question. He says, do you still not have faith? Now, the way that can actually be worded is, where is your faith? In other words, not your faith is absent, but in which direction is your faith pointed What is the object of your faith? By asking this question, Jesus is basically telling them, because you got to remember, if you look through the scriptures, we have this weird phenomenon in in, in the church that when we talk about faith, we talk about it, uh, we use phrases like he didn't have enough faith, or if I had more faith than I could, or if they had more faith than they would. But when Jesus talks about faith, he often talks about it as a very small, almost fragile thing that we have. Something that has growth potential. And so what Jesus is saying, he's not saying you just didn't have enough faith. He said, you have pointed your faith in the wrong direction. You have decided to use the little bit of faith you have to believe the voices of chaos, of destruction, and the unknown that are overwhelming your life than the fact that I said we're going to the other side. I didn't say we're going to the other side if a storm didn't happen. I never told you what would happen between the shores. All I told you was that we are going to the other side. And you decided to doubt that over something that I could calm with a whisper. I think oftentimes the fear and the anxiety and the doubt that swells up in our lives is nothing more than a result of a sign that we have decided to believe a louder voice.
a voice that we assume, because we like to, we kind of like to box God in. It's, he's much safer that way. A voice that we like to assume would not be present if God would just do things the way we think he should. This next verse, I think, is the most, most uh, perplexing. It says, They were overwhelmed by fear and said to one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. I grew up uh, kind of in a more Pentecostal, uh, charismatic wing of the church. And they're, they're used to, people used to say, if they would just see this sign, if they would just see this miracle, if they would, maybe some of you have heard it. Here's what's funny about this passage and a lot of other passages in the scriptures. The miracle that Jesus performs doesn't remedy the fear. It causes more fear. In fact, the actual translation is that they feared a greater fear. So Jesus does exactly what they ask, and the end result is they are more afraid than they were during the storm. Why do you think that is? To be real with you, I just think we want a God that we can manage. And I think it hit them like a ton of bricks that this God that they have boxed in, this God that had the power at the very beginning to stop the storm, didn't stop the storm. This God, this Messiah figure that they think that they have boxed in and figured out is not at all who they thought he was. See, if, if, you listen, if you listen to, whether it's, it's media, you listen to, uh, I'm just going to sound about to say uninformed. When I say uninformed, people who don't really study their Bibles, they have these definitions. You, you've heard it said, and you can fill in the blanks for however you heard it. If God was love, then he would allow, he would do, he would be, right? You've all heard that. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus, by his actions, says, nope. But actually, because I am love, because I am mercy, because I am grace, I will allow you to go through this storm. Because my greatest hope for you, my greatest hope for you, is that you be made in my image. And I will strip every security you have away from you if it causes you to lean deeper into me. God's love is not based on our promotions or lack of. It's not based on our success or lack of. It's not based on our social ladder. It is based on his choice and the fact that he just loves us. And he is so, I, there's an there's a author that I really like, Brendan Manning, and he says it, that there is this furious longing from God. And this longing that God has to be with us is so strong that he will send us through any storm there is to destroy that which stands in the way of us deeply loving him.
so here, so here we are. That's kind of the immediate picture. But now I, I'm going to do something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of sum this up, and I'm going to leave some names out. So we have this picture of a prophet who is going to a pagan place via boat with skilled fishermen, skilled sailors. A storm comes up. Said prophet is sleeping. Sailors freak out. They wake the sailor, they, they wake the prophet up. And then by a miraculous act of God, the winds and the sea completely stop. What other story could I be talking about in the Bible? Anybody ever hear the story of Jonah? When it says they feared a greater fear, that's actually a Jewish uh, phrase that's tied back to Jonah 1.10. In fact, when you take this whole same period of time that we were talking about, okay, chapter 3.20 through 5.20, if you go look at this same section in the book of Matthew, Jesus actually starts this section out in, in, in Matthew chapter 12. He actually starts this section out by saying, one greater than Jonah is here. What Mark is trying to tell the people of Rome, and what I think that Mark is trying to tell us today, is that Jesus is the good and better Jonah. And then when you read on in Matthew 12, what Jesus says is, is the difference in the stories is that Jonah falls into the storm because he was running from God, but Jesus falls into the storm because he is running with all of his love and passion and mercy into us. And then Jesus says in Matthew 12 that unlike Jonah who spent three days in, in the belly of a well, I'm going to spend three days in the belly of the earth. Because see, what it looks like to us when you compare the stories that Jonah gets swallowed up by the storm, but Jesus doesn't. But what he tells us in Matthew 12 is, oh, I do. In fact, I get swallowed up by the storm that has the greatest eternal significance there is. I get swallowed up by the storm of brokenness, of loneliness, of sin, of chaos, of devastation. I sacrifice myself into that storm so that you can make it to the other side. And sometimes the biggest lie that the voice of chaos and destruction get us to believe is the immediate circumstances in our lives. And what Mark is trying to tell us is that if Jesus is the great and better Jonah, the one who promises to, or who promised to sacrifice himself into the only storm that has eternal significance so that we can get to the other side, if he has promised to do that, then you can guarantee that he is with you in the small storms of this life. No matter what they look like. No matter what any televangelist or preacher, whatever has told you, Jesus never promises us that there will be no storms in life. Never. But what he promises us is that if we take the little bit of faith that we have and we direct it at his voice, his word, and not the word of chaos and destruction, that as we ride through the storm with him, we will be filled with peace and joy. 
So this is not to condemn us for feeling anxiety or feeling fear. I think those are human emotions. But rather than let those control us, allow those to be indicators that we need to take the faith that we have and redirect it to the one who has said, we are going to the other side. N.T. Wright, there's this quote that I think goes great with this. He said this, how can we live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between, a world with the Jesus that we can manage. Let's pray.